Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Mike Bershon. I teach English at McEwen University, and one of the courses that I teach is an introduction to film narrative. And I'm using the podcast as a delivery device for my lectures this fall as I'm teaching online because it's COVID and it's easier for my students to grab this content. So I hope that if you're not one of my students that you've been enjoying this and that if you're a little bit like, hey, I thought this was about the things that we read, watch and play. How come so much watch? Because lectures for my students. Uh, but this week we are definitely looking within the wheelhouse of specula speculative fiction. Not science fiction, not fantasy, but horror with Jordan Peele's amazing film, Get Out. All right, so we're finally at the aspect of cinematic language that I think most people look at before they look at anything else with a film. You say, like, how was the movie? Most people that I know will reply, well, the acting was, wasn't good, or it was, oh, the acting was amazing, or I love whichever actor it is that's in the movie that they went for. You know, they might really like a particular performer and, and that's why they were there. That's why they showed up. And so I get this impression that people feel like they're experts on acting. And I, I, I think that there are films where acting absolutely matters. And the case study that I'm using today, Jordan Peele's Get Out, I think it sinks or swims on its performances. Uh, but I think that there are movies that don't, that it doesn't matter as much. We're going we're gonna to be talking about one next week, Star Wars. You might be like, oh, wait a second, wait a second. I like the performances in Star Wars, but I grew up with it, so what do I know? I mean, when you see a movie when you're six, you've got a pretty subjective, nostalgic view of that thing, and it's hard to get your head outside of it. But I know from, uh, there was one review for Star Wars where... The critics said, it's really amazing that, that George Lucas got these bad performances from his actors because it feels like those old-timey movies that this movie is an homage to. So this is a critic going, oh, everything else in this film is so spot on. Clearly, these bad performances by the lead actors must have been intentional, just like everything else. And, and really, it was just that, you know, you had some young actors. And, and maybe we like them. Maybe we like Harrison Ford. Maybe we like Carrie Fisher. Maybe we like Mark Hamill in those roles. Or maybe we just can't see them, uh, you know, as anything else but what they are, which is Luke and Leia and Han. But uh, critics didn't think much of their acting. That movie got a lot of uh, nominations for Academy Awards. Acting was not one of them. Supporting acting was for Alec Guinness as, as Obi-Wan Kenobi, but... Mm -mm -mm, not for the actors, not for the actors, not for the leads. This was not my first choice, by the way. Get Out was not my first choice for this segment of the course. But a series of unfortunate events put it in the course, and I'm really glad that it did. As I say, I think this film sinks or swims based on its acting. But what I originally had wanted to use was Silence of the Lambs, which adhered to my criteria for the movies that I chose for this semester, which is that they had to be nominated for multiple Academy Awards. And Silence of the Lambs was nominated for many and won for acting. So I was like, oh, well, I got to have that. But the, the copy that I ordered turned out to be a very old copy. And I didn't notice until the day that I was going to take it into our e-reserve department to get them to put it online so that students could access these movies. And I did not notice that this old copy was what we call full screen, which means it was formatted for little square TVs, 
old-timey TVs. And, uh, and I had a decision to make in that moment. I was like, okay, well, I could order a newer, shinier version of Silence of the Lambs, or I could look to my left and see what movies I have here that might work. And people had been saying to me, uh, are you going to put Get Out in your course? Are you going to put Get Out in your course? Now, they were, they were mostly talking about my horror course. I'm teaching a course on horror films uh, next term. And I kept saying no, because I don't think that it is like a giant of horror in ways that are significant about the genre. I think Get Out is significant for reasons that have to do with race and representation. And yes, it's a great horror movie, but time will tell whether or not it's going to be one that is like hugely influential, influential in the ways that I wanted those movies to be. But I, I had to admit, like, I love the movie. I think it's great. I kept, you know, and people kept saying, are you get out in your course? And somebody had even asked me if I was going to put it in my intro course. And I said, no, because it didn't win enough awards. And then I got thinking, oh, I really would like to put it in though. And then this moment came up and I looked to my left and there was get out. And I thought, sure, why not? And I grabbed it and I stopped and I thought about it. Should I include this movie in my course? The only slot where it would really fit would be acting. That was leading right up to Halloween. I love to have some scary stuff around Halloween. Do I do it? Do I do it? And then I thought about the movie a little more and I was like, I absolutely should. And I'm going to tell you why uh, with the rest of today's uh, lecture. So let's start with answering the question, what is acting? What is acting? And, and for once, I'm not quoting Anne Hornaday for the definition. I, uh, this, this, this one comes right out of our textbook. <clears throat> so an art in which an actor uses imagination, intelligence, psychology, memory, holy smoke, vocal technique, facial expressions, body language, and an overall knowledge of the filmmaking process to realize, under the director's guidance, the character created by the screenwriter. Wow, that's a mouthful. Um, and I don't, I think, I think we have to qualify this, this definition that not all actors use all of these things and different actors are going to use different aspects of this because of the type of actor that they are. We're going to talk about different types of actors in just a little bit, but one of those actor types is someone who relies largely on their, their persona, their, their, uh, the, the persona that they, they exude. Um, and that they always are when they're on film. There are some actors who are just, that's, they're, they're always who they are. They're not really, there's no real shift from it. Like people will often say like, Morgan Freeman is a great actor. And I'm like, Morgan Freeman has a great persona. And I think he's a great s cinematic performer in that he knows how to hit his marks, be where the camera is tracking. And, but is he, you know, is Morgan Freeman a particularly different persona from film to film? No. And when we think about vocal technique, is, is Morgan Freeman doing something with his voice that makes him sound different? Or is it just Morgan Freeman's awesome voice that he was born with, right? Like he came out that way, like he didn't come out that way, but his voice is part of who he already is. He comes locked and loaded with that voice. It's not the same thing as somebody like Andy Serkis voicing Gollum. Or Andy Serkis playing a completely different role in, say, a movie like Black Panther. Andy Serkis has this wide range of vocal technique. And when we compare that with Morgan Freeman, and Morgan Freeman has a wonderful voice. It's the kind of voice that you might want to fall asleep to. But is it amazing vocal technique? I don't know that you could say that. Uh, in some cases, body language. Some people are, you know, they just, they're, 
they're big people. And so their body language has that sense of strength. Arnold Schwarzenegger's body language is, I'm huge, right? But if he's supposed to be playing something else, he always has this sort of like awkward nature to him. Like watch it, watch a Schwarzenegger movie where he isn't blowing people up. And his body language just has this sense of like, I'm going to knock something over. You know, maybe Schwarzenegger doesn't use body language as much because he's just this imposing presence. But great actors, I think, dip into all of this or many of these things. They use their imagination. They use their intelligence. They are intelligent people. There are some actors who are just dumb as a post. I've seen performers who are just like they can play a really smart person. And then you get them on a talk show and you're like, what? How is that? What? I just it's amazing to me. That is incredible. So imagination, intelligence, maybe it's that they have emotional intelligence in a way that, you know, someone else doesn't. Psychology, memory, vocal technique, facial expressions, body language. And then I love this, an overall knowledge of the filmmaking process. The more that an actor understands the filmmaking process, the better off they're going to be in it. Stage actors regularly report that they find it very difficult to make the transition from stage performance to cinematic performance. And it's because cinematic performance, you don't get to do the same thing that you do on stage where you, you get to just keep doing your thing and, and until the scene is finished. In cinema, you, it's like we're going to set up all these cameras, one line, and it's like the crying line, like cry on command, again, again, take number 40, again, I just need a different one, the sunlight wasn't right, or there was a fly on your nose. So it's a different process than acting on stage. So knowing the filmmaking process is important. Actors who play in special effects films regularly get skill sets that allow them to do it over and over again. And I'm sure that it's one of the things that goes into the casting director's mind when they're like, oh, who should we pick to be in this movie that's going to involve a lot of green screen technology. It's why Andy Serkis has done so much motion capture is because he has a knowledge of the filmmaking process that involves motion capture. So he gets a lot of motion capture jobs. Now, the lead in Get Out is an actor named Daniel Kaluuya. And he was nominated for an Academy Award for his performance in Get Out. And I think one of the ways to understand Kaluuya's range is to look at um, his performance in Get Out, where he is coded as weak and vulnerable, and then look at who he is in Black Panther. I mean, he's riding around on rhinos. He's fighting superheroes. This is a very, very different role. And he plays both and sort of disappears into them. I don't, I don't sit there going, oh, that's that guy. I recognized him uh, only after having seen Black Panther a few times and having watched Get Out in close proximity to that, I was like, oh, that's that actor. But I was shocked at that because the way that, uh, you know, in terms of mise-en-scene, the costuming department bulking him up, or maybe he just bulked up, but just the way that he exudes presence in Black Panther is very distinct from the performance that he brings to the table in Get Out. And this is important not only to say like Kaluuya's got range, but to also note that performance is directly related to genre. And it's one of the reasons, coming back to the movie that I would have been talking about this week, it's one of the reasons that I can't accept Silence of the Lambs as a horror movie. It's on all sorts of lists for being a horror movie. Are there horrific elements in it? Yes. Is it a horror movie? I don't think so. 
Why not? Because the female lead in that movie is not coded as a female horror lead or even a horror lead period because Chris Washington, the character that Daniel Kaluuya plays in Get Out is a good example of what a horror protagonist should be. They have to have you know, they, they have to be a bit weak. They have to be vulnerable. They have to be in a position where they can't control everything that's going on. And the lead character in Silence of the Lambs is very capable. She's one of the most intelligent people in the film. She's a very, very capable agent. And, and so is she weak? Is she defenseless? She's not. And Kaluuya plays that here. Not because it's the only thing that he can play, because he certainly doesn't play weak and defenseless in Black Panther. But in Get Out, that's what he has to be, because that's what horror films need. Horror films need lead, leading players who can play that vulnerability. When they get into trouble, there's a chance they won't get out. Right? Ooh, I didn't even intend for that to happen. Ooh, if there's a chance they won't get out. The textbook talks about the interplay of performance and effect. And what effect performance has on a film. And there's this concept that of, of initial interest. Our interest in a movie is often sparked by the actors featured in it. It might not be that those actors are particularly good. Or even good for the part that they're playing. I mean, there have been some atrocious casting choices in the past few years. Uh, that a number of people have been up in arms about. And rightly so. Where, you know, a Caucasian woman is cast as an ostensibly Asian woman in, say, a movie based upon an anime film. But why was that choice made? Because they, 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 they know there's going to be interest and connected directly to this, the idea of a movie's financial success at the power of some actors to draw an audience is frequently more important than any other factor. Like it or lump it, Hollywood is a money-making machine. Movie industries are money-making machines. Even indie films want to make money. They want to make another movie. They want to make enough money to pay their bills, but they also want to make enough money that they can make another movie. And every now and again, I hear people who are like who see themselves as film aficionados talking about the way that Hollywood operates or the way that different film industries operate, and they'll say like they'll they'll talk about it like we need to get back to some pure past when films were just art for art's sake. That is not a part of film history. I mean, there are these moments where we get these branching offs, these, these moments where you like, like someone goes off on, in, a, in, a, in an avant-garde direction and does something that's like art for art's sake. Um, but the core of what happens in film is about the industry and is about making money to be able to make another movie because movies are expensive to make. And since movies were made from the very beginning. It's been about making money because you want to keep your production company afloat. You want to pay your bills. You want to be able to make the next movie even more spectacular than the last one. And so money, economics are, they're, they're big factor. And when it comes to actors, man, that's important stuff. I mean, just look at these posters. There's one poster here for Gravity and Sandra Bullock and George Clooney's names are up at the top. Alfonso Cuaron, oh uh, yeah, he directed it. We're going to put him beneath the actors because we know you're not coming for Cuaron. I am, but nobody else is. Um, they're coming for Sandra Bullock. They're coming for George Clooney. I mean, I'm coming for Sandra Bullock and George Clooney too because I'm a fan. Um, but that's what's selling the movie. 
because maybe you don't know anything else about the film or maybe you're not really into movies about space, but boy, you sure liked Sandra Bullock in whatever movie it was that you liked her in or George Clooney in whatever movie, you know, or Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor and Moulin Rouge way up at the top. Where's Baz Luhrmann's name? Nowhere to be seen. It's very rare that directors get that kind of billing. You know, you've got people like Quentin Tarantino, their name will sell a movie. Steven Spielberg, his name will sell a movie. But Baz Luhrmann, when, when Moulin Rouge came out, nobody knew who he was. I would venture to say that there are many people who still don't know who he is. And so if you're going to sell the movie, you're going to put Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor's name up there because Kidman had been in a ton of movies and McGregor was an up-and-coming rising star. He, he, had been, he had been in Trainspotting. He had been in Star Wars. And then the idea of the essential relationship. I love what the textbook says about this. That the you know there's, we have this impression of the director and the actor having this very close relationship, and that's true. There are lots of examples of these really strong pairings between actors and directors. They have a very successful uh, collaboration. Johnny Depp, Tim Burton, many movies made by them as a team. Uh, and so you get this, these pairings uh, where, where you get a director who really likes an actor and they want to keep working with them. We saw that with Greta Gerwig and Saoirse Ronan uh, with uh, Little Women. She'd, uh, Ronan had been in Gerwig's Lady Bird. And, you know, you like working with somebody, you want to work with them again, you know that they're capable, you enjoy that relationship, you bring them back in. But the essential relationship that your textbook talks about is the relationship between the actor and the camera. And I've got this shot from Get Out of Bradley Whitford playing the father of Rose, uh, Chris, Chris's uh, girlfriend, and Catherine Keener playing Missy, uh, Rose's mom. And it's such a great shot in the movie, and I think it's a great example of the actor having the relationship with the camera. Because at this point in the movie, we're, we're so invested in Chris's survival. We know Chris is in trouble. We know he's in very serious trouble. He needs to get out. And he comes back to the house with Rose and walks up into the house. And as he passes Dean and Missy, Dean, played by Bradley Whitford with this big smile on his face, and Missy with her dead stare, this like, she's just so good at having this cold, lifeless gaze. And she's casting it as he walks up. No smile. It's almost just like she's like, there is no point in me dissembling anymore. But as the camera goes by her, she does this incredible thing where she, she turns her face into Bradley Whitford's coat, into his shoulder, and she kind of rolls her eyes like the whites come up for just a little bit. And it's not overt. It's not mugging for the camera, but it's definitely uh, Catherine Keener recognizing that the the, the person she needs to perform for, the eye she needs to perform for is the camera because that's going to get her to the audience. But what, why I think this is such a fabulous shot is because we're so invested in Chris at this point that we forget that it's a camera. We just think we're inside Chris Washington's head as he walks up the steps and Missy, with a dead stare, looks at him. And we're just like, oh, dude, you are so screwed. Right. Um, but that's that relationship with the camera. And, and, and she's not performing with another actor at that point. She's performing to the camera. I have to remember this all the time while I'm recording this stuff. Not so much for the podcast, because that's just audio. But I have to keep thinking to myself, look 
at the camera because my eyes want to go all over the all over my screens where all my information is and I want to go and look over and say like how's my hair and today it's like I'm channeling David Lynch it's just a mess um, and and but I got to look at the camera because if I'm not looking at the camera then I'm not really connecting with you I'm looking over here I'm looking over here and we're really aware of this this year with with the whole COVID situation all these Zoom meetings and Google meetings that we have. And, and you, you know, you're looking over here while you're talking to someone because that's where they are. And, and yet you're supposed to be looking here because this is the eye. And a really good, a really good performer knows this. A really good screen actor knows this. The textbook outlines four key types of movie actors and our film has three of them. <laughs> so Get Out has three, but one of the movies that we looked at this semester has the one that I'm going to start with, which is non-professional actors, which are cast to bring verisimilitude to a part. And we get these in, of all places, Fellowship of the Ring. You would think that everybody who was in Fellowship of the Ring was some top-notch performer, but as it turns out, there were a lot of non-professional actors in the form of the cast and crew's family. So the shot that I have here are these two wonderfully beautiful children. They're, they're Peter Jackson's kids. Uh, and the one little girl, she's just that little, oh, uh, when Bilbo is telling the story, they are not professional actors. They're Peter Jackson's kids. And lots of instances where movies will get non-professional actors for a host of reasons. Sometimes it's because in this particular case, you're like, I'm making this movie and I don't put my kids in this movie because it's my movie. Uh, I think that was a lot of the motivation here. I mean, I also think that this child is adorable. And so I can't fault, uh, I can't fault Peter Jackson for making this decision. Um, but there's, uh, there, there are, the, if you ever get to see, and I keep bringing this movie up, so maybe I'm just going to have to put it into the course next time I teach it, but Gareth Edwards' Monsters was filmed for such a low budget that there are only three professional actors in the movie, the two leads and then one other character. And then the rest of the performers are non-professional actors. Like when they're in a taxi cab, they're really talking to a South American cab driver. And when they rent a boat, they're renting a boat from one of those organizations that takes you out on the bayou or whatever it may be. That movie is chock full of non-professional actors. And it really does bring a sense of verisimilitude to the movie. There's always a sense of this being very real. Personality actors, actors who take their persona from role to role or personas, right? Um, they take their persona from role to role. The way that they are, it's the Morgan Freeman thing. Morgan Freeman is Morgan Freeman in just about every movie that he is. You don't really go like, wow, what an incredible difference. George Clooney is a great example of this. We're going to see George Clooney coming up in Gravity. So I thought I would include him because he's, he's one of the best examples that we have of this this semester. I think Harrison Ford is another example. Some people would disagree with me. I'm like, no, you just like Harrison Ford. You dig who he is. You think he's pretty cool. But I can't think of a lot of Harrison Ford films where I go, that was a really huge leap from everything else he's ever done. George Clooney, same thing. George Clooney is always charming. George Clooney has always got that little half-cock grin. And the only time that I remember being like, wow, George Clooney was when he made the leap back into comedy when I saw him in uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, the Coen Brothers movie, because he had primarily been doing like semi-action parts, like he did sort of uh, thriller uh, flicks. Um, and, you know, he'd be like a, a, a very masculine leading man. Uh, but he did a lot of drama as well and he some romance. And that was what I was expecting from him. And then he's doing comedy. And I really shouldn't have been surprised by that because he got his start on comedy sitcoms in the 80s. But George Clooney is George Clooney. And if you like that, 
then you see a George Clooney movie, you'd be like, oh, I got to go see that one. Don't like George Clooney, you know, to stay away because he's always going to be George Clooney. I think the same thing of the actress who plays Zelda in Shape of Water. Every movie I've seen her in is more or less the same personality. And casting directors make those decisions based upon that. I know that when I was in theater, when we would be doing auditions, sometimes someone would audition for one part and I'd be like, no, but they're perfect for that other one because of the way that they just were, what their persona was. And I think that a lot of actors, a lot of famous actors are perceived as being great performers, but what they are is they're people who have very charming personae or their personae is like unsettling. Christopher Walken can be a very, very creepy dude. And that was sort of what he made his bread and butter off of that for a while. He's got a lot more range than just that, but he can really leverage that, you know, kind of unsettling, uh, unsettling character. Uh, Bradley Whitford, who plays Rose's father, this seemingly ultra-liberal, somewhat woke, but still awkwardly, marginally racist. He He's always kind of played the same guy in just about every movie I've ever seen him in. I haven't seen him in everything he's ever been in, but he always he always kind of plays a guy who's got a little bit of sarcasm. He jokes around, uh, very white bread, very, very typically Caucasian. Um, you know, Bradley Whitford is not going to play the guy who is really into, you know, like gangster rap unless they want to make it be some sort of awkward thing. And that's exactly how this works in this film is that he's playing to type. It's like Jordan Peele was like, who's the whitest guy we can get? You know, and they are like Bradley Whitford. Uh, here he is in, uh, in the, the West Wing. This is uh, one of the roles that he is best known for, playing uh, Josh Lyman, uh, working in the, in the president's office. Uh, and there's that smile, that winning smile, and that sense of charm that he brought to uh, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, which was a, sort of like a, a play off of the, uh, the true story of Saturday Night Live. Uh, and it's that same half-cocked grin uh, that George Clooney has to some degree, that confidence. Uh, and even in Cabin in the Woods, he looks like Josh Lyman. He's got the same bloody shirt and, you know, the tie. And he's just a regular guy and he's ending the world, but he's still Bradley Whitford. Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Bradley Whitford is in Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and he's Bradley Whitford. And they'll always change his name, but he's ultimately always Bradley Whitford, and he's always got that half-cock grin, and he's always making sarcastic jokes, and he's charming, and if you like Bradley Whitford, you'll like him a lot, and so if you showed up to get out because you're like, oh, Bradley Whitford's in that, and then the reveal comes that he is not a good man, that he is, he is the villain, he is bad. The moment of the auction... Bradley Whitford with his finger up in the air, no smile to be seen, no sarcasm in sight. And what I love about this is that now we've moved from the actor who moves that persona from movie to movie to actors who deliberately play against our expectations of their persona. And so you kind of have to have the established persona in the first place to play against it. I, uh, I used uh, Steven Spielberg's version of War of the Worlds last year, which starred uh, Tom Cruise. And I had a student who was clearly a huge fan of Tom Hanks. Big Tom Hanks fan. And her argument was that Tom Hanks should have played the part that Tom Cruise did. Battle of the Toms. Instead of War of the Worlds, the War of the Toms. And I disagreed. 
And the reason I disagree is because I think what Steven Spielberg was doing in his version of War of the Worlds was using Tom Cruise, who was known and continues to be known as an action movie lead, to throw the audience off. They'd come in and go, it's Tom Cruise, he's going to kick some alien ass. And then the character that he plays isn't the alien ass kicker, he's just a deadbeat dad. And the audience is like, whoa, didn't see that coming. It was frustrating for some, for some audiences, I, I know, but... The other reason I think that, that Spielberg would have done something like that is that even though Tom Cruise was wacky and wild that year in the talk show circuit, he was still loved as an American everyman. And I think that's the same sort of thing that Bradley Whitford brings to Get Out is that American everyman for the white guys who showed up to the show. A lot of people, you know, coming to Get Out might be like, oh, it's that guy from the West Wing, or oh, it's that guy from that show, or he was just, I loved him in Cabin in the Woods. I don't know. But he... But he he doesn't come across as menacing, that's for sure. Bradley Whitford's the last guy on earth that's going to come across as like, oh, I bet he's the villain. And this movie does some smart moves to throw us off the scent early on. And I'm going to talk about those in just a little bit. One of the other types of actors that the textbook identifies is the chameleon actor, actors who seem to be different in every role. Anne Hornaday says the best actors utterly transform themselves physically, vocally, and psychologically. This is what I was talking about back at the beginning when we were looking at that definition to become the person they're playing. And Meryl Streep, I think, is the best example that we currently have. She is, of her generation, one of the great chameleon actors. Unlike someone like Morgan Freeman, who is more or less always Morgan Freeman, Meryl Streep is a chameleon. She will alter her body language, her voice, whatever it is that she needs to, to become the part that she's playing for the movie that she's in. And she does, you know, I, I just think about her in Little Women. Uh, she didn't have to do a lot of, of chameleon work there. But, you know, you can love Meryl Streep. You shouldn't really love Aunt March. I mean, you can be like, oh, I knew someone like her, but she's not supposed to be a likable character. And I think Meryl Streep does a very good job of handling that role. But she changes from movie to movie. She's definitely a chameleon actor. We get a chameleon actor in Get Out. We've got someone in this movie who does a chameleon role. I don't know enough about Alison Williams' other performances to know that she has this range outside of this movie. But in this film, she, she engages in this chameleon work to throw us off. This is one of those things that the movie does that's so smart. Uh, it, it presents her at the beginning as this perfect girlfriend, and especially because this movie had so much hype over its social commentary. This film is commentary on racism. And so someone might come and they're like, I'm totally woke and I'm really, I'm really aware of what's going on and, and I'm anti-racist. And they start watching this movie and Rose, played by Allison Williams, comes across that way at the beginning of the film and she's assisted to some degree by the costume department here and the lighting is is helping along too we've got some nice diffuse lighting to make to soften up her features um but she's she's just great and when she chews that uh policeman out for for asking for chris's uh license we're we're with her and if we're the kind of person that Rose is supposed to be at the beginning of this film, we're going to identify with her strongly. And that's going to make the, uh, the reveal later in the film so much more painful, right? The moment when Chris painfully has to say, I think we've got to leave. And she says, I'm coming with you. We're like, oh, thank goodness. And at that point in the movie, if we're not a particularly sophisticated film watcher, we haven't watched a lot of films like this. We're going to be like, oh, thank God, Rose, you're just so great. We all need a Rose, don't we? And, and then 
that moment of the reveal when, you know, we still think, I, I feel like many of us might still, I know I did, want Rose to not be who we really suspect she is, but I kept hoping, I kept like, just pull out the keys, can you please pull out the keys? When she finally pulls out the keys and goes from that look of trepidation to ice cold, you know, it's the moment where we understand, uh, you know, that, that the apple didn't really fall that far from the tree with Rose and Missy. Uh, there's that dead stare. Uh, but uh, I watched this with my kids as part of a Halloween thing that we're doing. Freaky Fridays with their dad. And we're watching horror movies that aren't too horrifying because my daughter's 12. And uh, and so, you know, you don't want to you don't want to go crazy with it. Uh, and Get Out was one of the movies that I felt was appropriate. And uh, my kids were not prepared for Rose being Rose. They were, and, and they were still trying to even parse out the, the revelation that Chris has when he goes into that little secret room and looks at all those photos. They were just like, what? No, what? What? No. And, and then the big reveal, and there was this, ah, in the room. And I think it's great to have barometers like that when we're watching movies. Uh, I often think that film critics who are reviewing children's movies should have to take children with them, or at least go to a, a theater with children in it. Because I don't think that, from near as I can tell, a lot of film critics cannot remember what it was like to be a child. And surprise and suspense in movies. I mean, I'm 49. I'm a little jaded about these things. I usually know where a movie is headed. But I try as much as I can to just flow with where the film wants to go and enjoy it for what it wants to be and and let it suck me in but i can't ever totally get back there but it's wonderful to have somebody in the room who isn't as as uh, jaded as i am who can look at it and go oh the shock right but when we've got once once she's revealed as villain uh mise-en-scene really comes in to assist williams's performance which remains remarkable especially in the scene when she's on the phone with chris's buddy and she's got this cold, impassive stare, but the way that she's pitching her voice, the emotion in her voice is completely different from what's on her face. But the scene when she's sitting on her bed uh, and she's listening to, I had the time of my life. I guess she's watching some 80s movie near as I can tell. I don't know. Is that Dirty Dancing? Anyway, she's watching some very, very white movie. That's what I always think of when I see that scene is like everything in the mise-en-scene from sound to lighting to the Fruit Loops and a glass of milk. What's with that? I mean, I ate dry cereal when I was a kid too, but I think there's something really wacky about about this bowl of dry Fruit Loops and she's drinking milk in a glass and she keeps those things separate and she eats them with this, like, I don't know what you want to say, just this mad precision, this this perfectionist's precision of eating Fruit Loops. And then look at the way that the shot is uh, lit. It's lit from below. Horror movie, horror movie lighting. That's what our textbook referred to it as. You think back to Ziedler with that lighting that's coming up at him. And when it was Nicole Kidman uh, that the lighting was on, they went more diffuse. No diffuse lighting for Alison Williams at this point. It's like, let's shoot from below. Let's accentuate her cheekbones. And she looks gaunt. She looks cadaverous in this shot. And uh, it's just this, 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 full, this full change. So it's acting in concert with mise-en-scene. And sound to some degree. And it's hard because 
We identify with characters and the actors who inhabit those characters. As I say, if, if you're the sort of person that Rose is supposed to be at the beginning of the film, you're going to be like, yeah, Rose, we all need a Rose. I want to be like Rose. And then she holds the keys up and you're like, I don't want to be like Rose anymore. You know, Anne Hornaday says in many ways, acting is the most fundamental element of cinematic grammar. Why? Because it's so close to how we inhabit the world and how we experience life. And it comes through this identification of characters and the actors who inhabit those characters. Hornaday's statement about this being a fundamental element of cinematic grammar has to do with us identifying with characters. If you make movies that are just shots of uh, the, the wild, you know, you can make a movie that's all these pictures of um, landscapes and stuff. And maybe you'd put it on in the background, but it's not the sort of thing that you sit down and just resolutely watch. Uh, I have a friend who films um, in the wild, literally. Uh, I can't remember the the exact name of his show. I will I will try to because it's it's great. It's beautifully shot. Um, From the wild, I think, is what it's called, and it's about um, going out into the woods and getting food, basically, and 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 how we you know like hunting, gathering, foraging, and he will go out and fish in some box canyon in the Rockies that no one has ever been to with a couple of guys. And that entire thing could be really, really dry with no narrative. But what he does is he tries to craft a narrative where, where we as the viewer could identify with these people in some way. He, he turns it into a struggle. He gives it a bit of crisis because if all we have is nature shots, we're not really going to, we're not going to connect in the same way that we will. As soon as you put, uh, as soon as you put a character into that, Vista. Now we're connecting. Now we're identifying. And that's why Hornaday says that acting is the most fundamental element of cinematic grammar. She says that, you know, going all the way back to those, those, those first filmmakers, uh, the, the, you know, when Edison was making his movies and the Lumiere brothers were making their movies and, and George, George Méliès was making his movies. They were filming people. They were filming people. For Méliès, it was like, fantastic stories with people in them. And for the Lumiere brothers, it was just, hey, this is a bunch of people coming out of a factory. But people still went to see it because there was a narrative going on in there. We identify with characters and we identify with characters who pursue a goal. We want the story to go somewhere. It doesn't go anywhere. We're not very interested. And Chris's quest to understand what's going on with, once he once he figures out, this is something a little bit weird here, but once Andre slash Logan uh, Andre Hayworth uh, slash Logan King enters his his uh, his world. Uh, then he really wants to track down what's going on, and the, the goal becomes very concrete. That's pretty typical in a horror movie. What's going on? And so the strong goal-oriented aspect to it. We identify with characters because of our own behavior as people, and horror movies are a great way to see this manifest because. If you have expressive individuals or if you just even check your own uh, your own sort of emotional landscape as you're watching a horror movie, we identify with the characters because of our own behavior as people and we will speak about it in this way. Don't go in there. You shouldn't. Oh, he shouldn't go in there. And so we're, we're, we're identifying with them and we're talking about their behaviors. When Chris is all awkward at the party and he's hiding behind the camera, I'm like, oh, I totally get that because I'm an introvert. And if I was at that party, I'd want to hide behind a camera too. And when 
Bradley Whitford waves him over and he like just kind of pretends to check his viewfinder. I'm like, oh, I identify with that as well. Uh, we're not going to identify with every character. That's impossible. But, you know, lead characters have to have to resonate with a lot of audience members or the film isn't going to work in the way that I was speaking about earlier with, with you know, the financial side of things. We identify with behaviors consistent with our general state of mind. We are engaged in role playing. We get invested with a character and we start to think, what would I do? And that's in horror movies. It really comes out. Don't, don't, don't open the door. Don't, don't go into the woods by yourself. Oh, why, why would you do that? Because it's a horror movie and somebody has to do something stupid so that things can go sideways. I think Get Out's a very smart movie because at no point do I ever really feel like Chris is an idiot. I think there's a point at which we as the audience are like, we know more than he does. But I don't think I ever felt like I was sitting watching a movie where I was like, uh, he should have left already. The movie did some things. I'm going to talk about that in just a second to make sure that we, we would buy that. So we identify with behaviors consistent with our general state of mind. We are engaged in role playing. And that's, that depends on the genre of the film. It depends on the sense of verisimilitude that the movie is going for. We have to, as I say, roll with where the film wants to flow, right? Uh, sometimes people will say, well, like, somebody wouldn't really do that. And I'm like, well, this particular character would, and here's why. Uh, so when, when Chris is digging out the, the cotton to, you know, to do what he does, I'm giving you a ton of spoilers here. Hey, if you watch this, if you listen to this episode or you watch this episode and you, you got like a little ways in, you should have known, oh, I should shut this off and maybe go watch Get Out. I think you should always watch the movies before you listen to this or watch it. Um, but when he gets that cotton out to do what he's going to do, uh, we're, we're a little bit befuddled, but we know he's up to something. We're like, yes, do something to get out of there. Struggle, struggle. Uh, the, the, the chapter talks about criteria for assessing acting. And this is sort of where I began to some degree everybody's an expert on film. Everybody has an opinion, even though they may not have the criteria for why the cinematography is good or why the editing is good, but everybody feels like they've got the right uh, criteria for assessing acting. And the textbook gives us these criteria, appropriateness slash transparency, that the role feels like, like this is the right casting. This is the person who should be playing this part and that they feel real. Dustin Hoffman uh, in an interview once said that uh, it's not that you, you, you play a prick, it's that you look for the prick inside you and then you let that out. And I gotta say, Caleb Landry Jones has a lot of prick inside him then. And, and hopefully he doesn't let it out too much in, in real life, but my God, did he ever do it in this movie. Jordan Peele said that they did a number of takes for this sequence and that Caleb Landry Jones brought brought it every time and was just menacing and creepy. He works so well in this role that I, I feel like I would have a Joffrey moment with him. I feel like I, if I ever met Caleb Landry Jones in real life, I would have a tough time distinguishing him from Jeremy Armitage. He's just so good in the role. But then again, so is Catherine Keener. I buy her completely with that dead stare, that cold face, when she says, then sink uh, into the floor. I'm like, God, she is terrifying. And yet her performance is so restrained. Um, and, and she just, she works so well. And Hornaday says that if acting is the primal tool of cinema, casting is the opposable thumb. Knowing who to put in the role is as important as the performance itself. I'm sure of this. I have seen some movies where I'm like, 
That was some bad casting. Like, I like that actor, but they shouldn't have been in that movie. I love that actor, but they shouldn't have been in that movie. I don't have that experience when I watch Get Out. An inherent thoughtfulness or emotionality that that moves throughout, that the, that the character is more than just, uh, I can cry on demand, but that there is a depth to the tears, that there is an emotional resonance that lies beneath the surface uh, that the actor is drawing upon to present things that the movie might never confirm, but that the actor hints at. And I think uh, Daniel Kaluuya does such a good job of hinting at the darkness of his past. There's, you know, the movie tells us what happened to his mother, but there are still a lot of gray areas in there, a lot of unresolved and ambiguous things. Uh, and then the, the textbook talks about expressive coherence, that the way in which the character acts makes sense over the course of the film, even if there are inconsistencies. And the moment at which Chris goes out to get um, the maid, uh, Georgina, after he's run her over, and we're all sitting there going, it's the grandmother! And, uh, and we're like, don't put her in the car! But we know that Chris will, because... Chris cares. It's why he didn't leave immediately. It's why he's worried about uh, and Andre Hayworth. He wants to solve this because he's worried about this guy, but at some point he just realizes he's in danger. But here, we've, we've had this consistency of who this character is and his level of empathy for other people. And he's run this woman over and he thinks about what happened to his mother and that no one stopped for her. And it, it, it has this this expressive coherence that goes beyond the story note of, well, it was like his mom. It's Kaluuya's performance that sells this moment where I'm like, don't go out, but I still believe that he would. A wholeness and unity to it that moves through the entire picture so that the point at which, you know, he's got his hands wrapped around Rose's neck and we're like, killer, killer. We all, we all might feel that as the audience, but I understand when the movie doesn't have Chris kill her, why that's the case, because that's not who Chris is. And the movie doesn't, doesn't change him at that point. He's not, he's not become a monster. He will not be monstrous at the end. And then finally, I just want to come back around to the, the idea that this movie sinks or swims on performance. Lakeith Stanfield's performance as Andre Hayworth at the beginning of the film, and then Logan King later on, fabulous mise-en-scene playing into this right at the beginning he's got a bit of a beard later on he's clean shaven clothing changes chameleon moment and we've got a completely different character and the horror moments come as a result of these performers who play these inhabited bodies these 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 bodies that have you know selves in the sunken place as well as the you know invasive uh the invasive cognition of these these people who have stolen their 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 bodies um betty gabriel as georgina is terrifying but she isn't in every film that she is she's a beautiful woman uh and a very very capable actor of of, of doing a, a range of other things in this movie, I just, I find her so scary. She terrifies me in this movie. She's assisted by sound, and she's assisted by lighting, and she's assisted by camera placement, but her performance is phenomenal. The way that she has that 
again, I, here we go. Third generation dead stare of the Armitages. I didn't even think about that until here I am lecturing about it, but those Armitage women. Although, as it turns out, um, Georgina is the mother-in-law. She's not actually related to Missy by blood uh, in the lore of the film. And then we get Marcus Henderson as Walter. So creepy. And then when Chris flashes the camera when Walter's trying to strangle him and he gets up and he looks back at Rose, we as the audience can see the life, the light in his eyes, that there is, there's the self there now, that it's not that dead stare, the Armitage dead stare, the creepiness of uh, Henderson's performance when he is the grandfather versus when he is that true self. And, uh, and I think that there's a little bit of that cinematic dark going on here. The idea that, um, pitch black should never be represented on screen because you don't want to have a pitch black screen. You, you want to represent light at some level, even if it is a very, very dark environment, if it's a dark setting. And here, I think we're seeing that at an emotional level where we, as the audience are recognizing it to ask why Rose doesn't see it is pointless. Rose can't see it. That's for us. That's the cinematic dark at an emotional level. Anne Hornaday says that evaluating an actor's performance is one of the most difficult tasks of a critic because a good performance looks so natural because it conforms to too believably with our ideas of how people live and talk and behave. It almost literally defies description. And because the best performances are usually the product of often invisible preparation, analysis, and reflection on the part of the actor, it's nearly impossible to identify what that actor is doing when they are finally in front of a camera. Difficult, not impossible. I think we can assess how acting uh, assists a film at the very least. I think that one of the problems that Hornaday is talking about is related to the very way in which we interact with films, which is to constantly evaluate them on a, on a level of stars. Is it one star? Is it two? Is it five? Right? Is it thumbs up or is it thumbs down? What about how did the acting interact with the other aspects of cinematic language? How did it support them? How did it not? Maybe the performance is really great, but the actor did something that took away from, from some other aspect of the film maybe some other aspect of the film took away from what the actor's performance was trying to achieve. These things are all working in concert and we can never forget that. Too often people come uh, away from movies saying that it, it you know, was thumbs up or thumbs down simply based on the performances. And I think that that is misguided. I'm not saying that people shouldn't do it, you know. You enjoy movies your way. But I think that we can enrich our enjoyment of films by understanding film language in the way that we're learning in this course and seeing how those uh, elements synthesize to produce a really great film, a really great scare here at the Halloween season with Jordan Peele's Get Out. Next week, we travel to a galaxy far, far away with George Lucas's Star Wars, way back to 1977. That's a galaxy far, far away and long, long ago, isn't it? Until then, I'm Mike Pershawn, and this has been Triple Bladed Sword. Thanks for joining me.